This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined by so many people today. <laughs> Not just bro. But yes, there is, of course, Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Bro, we are not alone today. No, we're not. We have joining lots us friends. lots and lots of friends because on this week's episode, we've enlisted the help of the team of analysts at The Motley Fool to address some of your more challenging investing-related questions. So we're going to cover buying stocks on margin, tax loss harvesting, and even a few stock recommendations. And before we're done, Bro is going to share a whale of a tax tip with you. <laughs> You'll get the joke later. It's not that great. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Every couple months or so, we dedicate a whole episode to answering your questions, and today is that day. Yay! For those of you who are <laughs> beginners, you might feel that the content is a bit over your head. Um, some of it is over mine, but don't fret. That's how we learn. Stick with us. We'll try to have a good time. We will. Okay, we it's guarantee, a guarantee. We guarantee that we will try. Absolutely. That's all we can do, really. <laughs> all right. So, our first question comes to us from Scott S. Scott has a question about tax loss harvesting. But before we get into that, bro, can you tell us briefly what tax loss harvesting is? If you have an investment outside of a retirement account, so it's outside of an IRA or 401k, and it is currently below what you paid for it, you have a loss. If you sell it, you can use that loss to offset any gains that you have. Any capital gains that you recognize, and after that, you can use it to you can deduct up to three thousand dollars off of your income. If you have a loss that's more than three thousand dollars, you can carry it forward to the following year. So let's say your loss is ten thousand dollars, you take three thousand this year, three thousand next year, three thousand the next, and then a thousand. So it's a way to lower your taxable income. Okay. Scott writes, I believe Kinder Morgan will perform well in the long term, but I have an opportunity to give my tax bill a small haircut in the short term. I'd plan to get back in after 30 days or so. So, do you think that investing with an eye on short term tax savings is inconsistent with my long term investing goals? Scott's worried that he's maybe deviating too far from the foolish ways of long term investing. So, we went to Brendan Matthews analyst here at The Motley Fool for his answer. So, Scott, it sounds like you've got a pretty good understanding of tax rules and tax loss harvesting. And for someone like you and a stock like Kinder Morgan that's very um, uh, steady, I don't think that there's anything wrong with deploying this strategy. We don't always tell all investors because it requires that you definitely know what you're doing because you could get burned if you don't. Make sure that you're thinking about your taxes, not just for this one position, but your portfolio and your income as a whole. And then also make sure you're timing Kinder Morgan's dividends, because uh, the stock does pay a pretty good dividend, and the price will move based on that. All right, bro, is there anything you want to add to Brendan's answer here? Yes, that 30 days that they brought up is important because there's something called the wash sale rule. So, if you sell something for a loss, you have to wait 30 days to buy it back. Otherwise, the loss is disallowed. So, if he sells Kinder Morgan today, he has to wait 30 calendar days starting the day after the sale, then he can buy it back. Uh, and that's important to know because Brendan brought up missing that dividend. If, he's not, if he doesn't own that stock during that point, he doesn't get the dividend. You can buy uh, investments that are similar to, but not identical. So, he could sell Kinder Morgan and then maybe, maybe buy an ETF that invests in these types of securities. 
but he has to stay away from Kinder Morgan. So this question arrived back in October. So it probably would have been more helpful for Scott to have an answer to this question before the end of the year. So sorry, Scott. To a certain degree, yes, because most people think of tax loss harvesting as something to do at the end of the year. But really, you should be looking for opportunities throughout the year to do this tax loss harvesting if you feel like it's appropriate for your situation uh, and you think it's a very temporary situation where the stock is down. Or it can be a bond, it can be an option, it can be all kinds of investments. If it's temporarily down, you might as well do the tax loss harvesting throughout the year. All right. So the next question comes to us from Jim. So we're going to send it to our Jim. James Early. Does he ever go by Jim? I don't know. He acknowledged it sort of in his response. So, Spoiler. (laughs) So, Jim wants to know, what three stocks do you recommend for income first, then growth? Bro, before we get to James Early's response, can you define the difference between income and growth? The return of the stock market is basically due to two things. The dividends, which is basically the way companies return their profits to their shareholders, and then the movement of the price itself. Some companies decide not to pay dividends. They rather use that money to reinvest in the business, which is where some people consider them more growth-oriented companies and feel like those companies have greater price potential because they're reinvesting in the business. So then, income first, then growth. Um, It sounds like he wants some stocks that pay some dividends but are also going to grow over time. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see what James Early's answer is. He's, of course, the analyst on Motley Fool's Income Investor Newsletter. Hi, Jim. I love your name. Um, (laughs) Let me first say a lot of people think this is sort of like asking to decide between being a bodybuilder and a marathoner, but a lot of dividend stocks actually do both of those. My first choice would be Spectra Energy, 5.3% yield, and I think 40% upside. This is an energy stock that's been beaten down by the oil price movement, but I see upside. Gentex, if you want to go with a much lower yield, 2.1% makes the automatic dimming rearview mirrors. It's kind of a sleeper hidden dividend technology stock, a lot more on the growth end. And finally, because we're in a period where we're going to see rising interest rates, Maiden Holdings, MHLD, pays you 3.5%. It'll benefit when interest rates rise, and it has been raising its dividend at double-digit rates in the past several years. All right, thanks, James and Jim, for sending in your question. All right, next Question comes to us from Jonathan, who lives in DC. Hey, come, Hi, on, Jonathan. come on down and see us sometime. Jonathan wants to know how do fools think about margins or buying stocks on margin? Robert, can you help me understand what it, what that means? Margin is essentially a loan, and you are using the investments in your portfolio as collateral. You're borrowing money to buy more investments. So you're leveraging your portfolio. Actually, you can use the money to pay for all kinds of things. Some people use their margin loans as a down payment for a house or buying something else, but most people use it to buy more stock. So it's a way of having $100,000 in your portfolio, but then borrowing against that to buy maybe $150,000 worth of securities. So if it goes up, you've got an even greater return. But if it goes down? It can be... It can be troublesome. Oh, well, let's learn more. Let's hear what JP has to say about that. <laughs> hey, JP. Well, for starters, uh, when you buy stocks on margin, basically what you're doing is you're borrowing money to purchase shares. And with respect to your question, conceptually, you are correct in that if the returns on the stocks you buy is greater than the interest you're charged on that money you borrow, then you're going to do quite well. Um, however, here at The Fool, 
generally speaking, we're kind of opposed to using margin, especially on rule breaker stocks that can be quite volatile because that can lead to a situation uh, where you get a margin call and that's really never a good thing for you. What's a margin call? So, like I said, you're putting your investments up as the collateral behind this loan. If those investments go down, your collateral is worth less. So, the lender, your broker or the bank, is going to say, listen, you don't have as much collateral anymore. You either A, have to give us more money, or we are going to sell those investments to cover the loan. So, in many cases, the stock has gone down, but because someone didn't have enough money to put back into the account to make up for that loss in the value of the collateral, they sell the investment which is, of course, the wrong time to be selling most investments. You don't want to be forced to be selling when it's down. So, you have to at least be ready to put more money in, if necessary. It sounds kind of scary. It is kind of scary. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. Next, we have a question from Steve. Steve wants to know, why would an investor buy Treasury securities with an interest rate of 0% rather than keeping their money in cash? Is it to avoid taxes on the interest they aren't earning? Grin. (laughs) 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 All right. So, to answer Steve's question, we went to Ron Gross for his answer. Treasury markets are really about safety. Institutions like large banks, hedge funds, even large corporations, at any given point in time, need to park billions of dollars in cash somewhere, and they need to keep it safe. And the treasury markets are the best place to do that. So even though they may earn 0% on a treasury investment, it's still better than putting that cash underneath their mattress, the proverbial mattress, because they know it's going to be safe. An alternative to that for institutions or even more specifically for individuals could be to put the cash in an FDIC-insured bank account. The problem with that for institutions is that those accounts are only insured by the FDIC up to $250,000. So, not very practical for an institution, but maybe fine for an individual investor. Bro, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I'll point out that, first of all, treasuries have various maturities from one month up to 30 years. So, if you go out like two or three years, you actually are making one, one and a half percent. Uh, on treasuries. The other thing about treasuries is that they are free of state income taxes. So, people who, li- who have higher incomes in states with high taxes also use treasuries to avoid the taxes they would have to pay if they instead had a CD or any other interest-bearing type of investment. Uh, and the other good thing about treasuries is they're a bond, uh, which in some cases you have to pay a commission to buy them, but you can actually get them uh, commission-free from treasurydirect.gov. A little tip for you there. Free treasuries for everybody. <laughs> you get a treasury, and you get a treasury. No right. commission, that is. You still have to pay for the treasury itself. Oh. Yeah. That suddenly got less interesting. But <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that part. All right. Thank you, Ron. And for our next question, it comes from Victor. He wants to know why some stocks are highly priced with low earnings, and some stocks are low priced but have high earnings. Is the stock market rigged. Uh, what does he mean by being high-priced but have low earnings and low earnings but high-priced? I'm going to assume he means the valuation of the stock, which is most commonly measured by the price-to-earnings ratio. You divide the price of the stock by the earnings of the company over the previous 12 months. So, you can have a company that basically is not making any money, especially a startup, 
and it has a ridiculous PE. It doesn't even make sense. It looks like it's very expensive because it do- it's not earning a whole lot of money. All right. So yeah. for this answer, we went to analyst Sarah Hav. The stock price is supposed to reflect the market's valuation of the company, and that valuation includes what it is worth today. And of course, these are all estimates that different analysts and investors are are making in various ways. But the price is reflecting what the the worth of the company is today, but also the worth of all of its future earnings and value creation discounted back to today's price. So that's going to include a lot more than just um, the current earnings from the company. And in that case, the stock market, if it's working correctly, is not rigged. The important thing that Sarah said there is that really the stock market is future-looking. What they, what they are valuing is what the company will look like in the future. So you may have a company that's not making a lot of money right now, but if the market anticipates that they will in the future, they're willing to pay a very high valuation for that company. Yeah, I remember people were always talking about Amazon and how Amazon wasn't turning a profit or what, you know, but it still was a very, very, they like to say an expensive stock, but it had nothing to do with the actual dollar amount of like like when you talk about a stock being expensive it's not this share a single share is $300 versus $30 right it's about the valuation of the company right this historical pe of the market is about 16 or 17 right now according to yahoo finance the pe on amazon.com is 903 <laughs> and that's price again price to earnings ratio price to earnings ratio right so if someone would look at that and be like why would i ever pay that much the price to earnings ratio of the stock market at the, at the peak of the dot com craze, which is when it got the highest ever, was like 43 or 45. Wow. So you look at Amazon at 903 and you think it's ridiculous. But you're buying it because you think it's going to earn so much more money in the future. And it certainly did very well this last year. It certainly did. Thank you, Sarah. And our last question comes from Corey. Corey writes, Thanks for all you do. Hey, you're welcome, Corey. You're welcome. Question for you guys. What effect, if any, does institutional ownership percentage have on a stock's price? All the best, Corey. So, for this answer, we went to analyst Simon Erickson. So, institutional ownership is stuff like hedge funds, pension funds, um, asset managers, stuff like that that's not just generally owned out in the public out there. So, these tend to be better researched, um, more resources going into those research, and larger blocks of stock trading hands at the same time. Uh, they have buy side analysts supporting their decisions and stuff like this. So, this isn't the general public buying these stocks, but a lot of hedge fund managers, pension managers, stuff like that buying these companies. So, it tends to, for better or for worse, depends on the market cap of the company, but it can be more volatile because you have more money exchanging hands at the same time because of those blocks and institutions buy. That can work both ways. Sometimes there's what we call window dressing, where companies fall out of favor of institutions and nobody wants to have that in their disclosures. So, they'll sell off a company that's out of favor, which could be an opportunity for an individual investor to get in when companies don't look so pretty anymore. On the other hand, there's other times that everybody wants to have X company in their in their mutual fund, and that tends to go the other way. So the larger companies are less risky, and I think are more appealing to institutional investors. But then again, if you have earlier stage companies that have high institutional ownership, uh, I consider that to be a positive because. They're well-researched. Uh, professional investors know that those companies have something going for them. It can work both ways. I would say, generally, for me, it's a positive. So, there you go. Generally, a positive. 
Right. One key point there is that this includes mutual funds that you have in your 401k. So to a certain degree, we're all participating in the institutional ownership of stocks. Uh, Long-term, smaller companies have outperformed bigger companies. And one of the reasons might be is that when you have really small companies, the institutions can't own them because uh, mutual funds are restricted to how much of a company they can own. Um, so the institutions kind of have to stay out of those waters, and that might give individual investors a little bit. It's a little bit of an edge because there are not as many people fishing in those waters. More opportunity to find undercover, undercovered stocks, undiscovered stocks. Um, it's a possibility. Sounds like a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Well, that is going to do it for today's mailbag. We're going to close it back up. If you didn't relate to any of these questions, well, you might as well just send us your own. Our email is answers at fool.com. You can also send us questions over Twitter. We are at answers, plural, podcast. Oh, I should also add the disclosure that I always add. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about here. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what we say on the show. For something we're gonna call tiptoe through the tool tips with bro. <laughs> we just catching. We have Rick just came up with this name literally right before we started taping this. So work working title, but we might we'll probably just go with it forever. Otherwise, I would have had my ukulele and we could have played along with it. I don't really know that song on my ukulele. Oh, we could learn it. We could learn it. So tiptoe through the tool tips, bro. What do you have for us today? Well, we're coming up on tax season, everybody. Um, so you'll hear a few more tax tips from us over the coming weeks and Get couple psyched. of months. So much fun! <laughs> uh, but one thing that everyone should do right now is consider what their taxes are going to be for this year. So I'm not talking about filing a return for last year, but for this year, because many people will find out come April 18th this year. By the way, that's when your taxes are due, April 18th, that they owe a lot of money. You want to know that now, so you can adjust your withholdings accordingly. Um, or if you're going to get a big refund, you want to adjust it so you can get that money up front rather than waiting till May or something of 2017. I thought about this because I was reading IRS publication 526. As one does. As I'm sure you all were doing. It's about charitable contributions. And I came across all kinds of great stuff that you might be able to get a deduction for. For example, taxidermy property. There are rules about donating taxidermy property to what a charity. Is, what is a taxidermy like property? A like a stuffed head? head? A stuffed okay. head. Uh, there are rules about uh, providing support for underprivileged youth selected by charity to participate in athletic events. Rules about uh, what you can deduct if you're a church deacon. Um, but my favorite is the expenses of whaling captains. You may be able to deduct... As charitable deduction, any reasonable and necessary whaling expenses you pay during the year to carry out sanctioned activities. Reasonable. Reasonable, reasonable people. But Don't you, go crazy. You must be recognized by the Alaska Eskimo Whaling Commission as a whaling captain. Which I am not. So. I am not either. But if anyone out there is, tell us about it. That's right. So, what are the tool tips? Well, the way to estimate what your tax is going to be is basically to do your taxes now if you can. But there are a few ways to very quickly estimate what your taxes are going to be either this year or for the next year. And they are one is TurboTax's Taxcaster. You can go ahead and just Google these so I don't have to read the long URLs 
on air. Another one is H&R Block Tax Calculator. And then another one is Tax Act Tax Calculator. Tax Act is the company. Tax Act. So I'm using the possessive Tax Act Tax. Does that make sense? Nope. Nope. But we'll share it on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and the good things about these is that you, they let you put in how many people in your family, your dependents, your exemptions, how much you're going to deduct, and various things. And it gives you a pretty good estimate of what your taxes will be last year and the upcoming year. That way, you can plan accordingly. Don't get hit with a big old tax bill. Right. It also helps if you're going to make some sort of a decision, right? Like you think, I'm going to sell some property. What kind of capital gain am I going to see? What are the taxes going to be for that? Um, you can estimate the consequences of getting married. Some people actually base when they're going to get married on what their taxes are going to be, either this year or the next year. Sounds like something Johnny would do. <laughs> it does sound like something Johnny would do. Yes. Uh, and if you've had a big life event, married, divorce, um, changed your jobs, big difference in your income, uh, got your salary cut or raised, you should put it all that stuff in now, too, so you can plan ahead. <laughs> you look so psyched. Plan ahead, people. Plan ahead, people. It's the smart and fun thing to do. <laughs> You're not selling it to me. I'm not selling it, am I? But no, I understand the practical the practicalness of it. I can appreciate that. So, and these are good t- these are good tool tips. Turbo taxes, tax caster, tax calculator, H&R blocks, and then something about the tax acts acts backs. <laughs> Jackson, Max, and Daxon. Exactly. Dot com. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for today, kids. Again, if you have questions that you want answers to, you can email us at answers at fool.com or you can send us a question over Twitter. We are at answers podcast. The show is edited taxingly by Rick Agnall. <laughs> for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.